Tena koto, tena koto, tena koto, katoa, no mai, welcome, hosha medit. Kodana Miles aho. I am a journalist and columnist for the press, and it's truly my pleasure to be chairing this session. But before I um, introduce this session on finding a place, I would like to acknowledge the uh, mana whenua of Otatahi. Natahu um, Horeri, and also the sponsors for this session, Colin Harper Collins, and also Alan and Anwen. Um, let me introduce you to our lovely um, and amazing guest speakers today, Goriz Gahraman and Ghazale Golbakhsh. I really feel that there is almost no need for me to tell you more about them because I feel that the reason that you are here is because you know um, what amazing uh, women they are and also uh, the books that they have recently published. Know Your Place by Goriz Gahraman, who is uh, a politician our first uh, refugee MP in New Zealand from the Green Party, and also Ghazale Golbakhsh. Her book is The Girl from Revolution Road. She's an academic filmmaker and also a writer. I really recommend you to buy the books, not only uh, to support the authors, but because I really think the books are amazing learning opportunities for you to understand the experience of not only Iranian Kiwis, but also all minorities living in New Zealand. Um, I personally would like to thank both um, Goriz and Ghazale for writing this book because um, we were talking this, about this before. It really has given me personally a voice and um, it also it's a language as a tool to um, express some of the experiences that we've had as minorities living in New Zealand. Um, both authors will be available after the session to sign their books. So please hang around um, and, as I said, support the books, buy them and get them to sign it for you. We are going to have um, an hour for this session. It's not a very long time. Um, I want to get to the heart of the books with, the both, with both, uh, authors. But I also want to give you, the audience, a chance to ask questions. I'm often sitting where you are, and uh, I'm always very keen to ask my questions, and I'm sure the authors would appreciate your feedback and the questions that you have. Um, about um, sort of their experiences and also if you've had a chance to read the books about the books. Can I just ask you, uh, both books are recent publications, but can I just ask you how many in the audience have actually read any of the two books? Mm-hmm. Right. Does that surprise you? That's, um, that's very good. It's really amazing. So especially those of you who have read the book, please feel free to ask questions um, at the end of the session. I'm also pleased to see a lot of um, familiar Iranian, voice, uh, Iranian faces in the audience. Welcome. Khosh Amadid Hamatun. Merci ke Omadin. Merci. So to begin with, um, I would like both um, Goriz and Ghazale maybe to tell us um, why you left Iran and um, why did you, what your families chose New Zealand to come to? So, Hazale, would you like to start? Sure. Um, hello. Thank you for having me here today and thank you for coming. Um, I was six when we decided to move. 
Um, so I didn't really have much say in the matter. Um, but my, my parents had a traumatic experience that I kind of look at in the book, and that's, that was for them the last straw, but it was in the late 80s, so it was during the um, war with Iraq. They'd just gone through the regime change and the revolution, so this was kind of like the final straw. Um, we tried to go to Europe or North America because we had family there and, you know, you kind of knew where these places were. <laughs> New Zealand, not so much. Um, but my auntie, who was a flight attendant, moved here with her husband and um, that's kind of how we made the link. And, and at the time, they were giving out tourist visas. New Zealand was one of the few places that was still giving them out. So we came on a tourist visa and my parents were lucky that they had... Um, certain skills that allowed them to get work. Um, and so that's kind of how we ended up staying. But we'd never heard of it, and we only knew about it because of my auntie. Um, and that's kind of, as they say, the rest was history. So. Mm. I read in the book that your dad um, said about New Zealand that they speak English and the lamb tastes good. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, <laughs> for them, it was really important to go to, to a Western place where they spoke English. Um, I think for them that was just just on their radar, um, and I think they knew that New Zealand would have a would be a good society. Like you know, they had, you have rights, you can you can um, apply for citizenship. It's not a place where you might not necessarily get those things, and I think that was important to them because I think they knew that this could be permanent. Mm. And and there was quite a pivotal event as well that led to that final decision. Yeah, um, and. Um, Tell us briefly about that. Um, I mean, I can say it now because it's been 30 years and they say with story writing, you know, tragedy plus time equals comedy. And that's kind of how I looked at it in the chapter. I kind of look at something quite harrowing and then try and bring in comedy. Um, so during that time, there were obviously a lot of restrictions and one of the restrictions was having mixed parties. So women and, and men couldn't um, gather so people would have parties underground, like you'd have secret parties. Um, and so my parents went to one of these secret parties um, in a small town, like, like say, Hamilton, if you lived in Auckland, because um, they thought that would be safer there. And so they had the parties. There was kids, there was family. It wasn't like some, you know, underground rave or anything. Um, and they had alcohol, which was also prohibited. And someone ratted them out, a neighbour or someone in the community, and they had um, soldiers and, and, and the morality police show up, arrest everyone, including the children, um, and then subsequently took a bunch of people and lashed them. Um, they had public lashings at the time. Um, not the kids. We had, there was some mercy. We were um, in prison for the night, but my dad, uncle, and a few of my aunties we're not so lucky, so... Yeah. And it's, it's weird to speak about it out loud right now. No, actually. no, I, I can, I can understand yeah. that. Thank you for sharing that with us. But it was an experience that mm -hmm. was very common. Yeah, for, it was. For many and Iranians at the time. It. And I think it's an important story because it really gives people an idea of what life was for very mm -hmm. ordinary socialising activity um, that led to such a harrowing experience for your parents. For, yeah. And as a child, witnessing that, being in prison... Um, witnessing that trauma must have been very traumatizing, which brings me to Goris. Mm. And, um, and if you can tell us about why it was that your family chose to leave Iran. Yeah, um, I do want to begin by thanking the festival for giving us this platform because obviously part of the reason these books are a bit weird or the reason we probably 
decided to write them <laughs> um, is that people like us from our backgrounds and with our faces and stories don't often get platformed. Um, so, you know, it, it's, um, it's extraordinary that we get to sit here and tell our stories given what's happening all around the world and Aotearoa gets to stand as a little bit of a counterpoint to that. Um, so my, my family arrived here as asylum seekers um, and we became political refugees. Um, so, so our story is more the story of that post-revolutionary decade. We got out a bit later. Um, and so I always kind of say, you know, I was born right after one of the most grand popular revolutions that the world has sort of seen in, in, in its modern history. And everyone was involved in the Iranian revolution in a way, you know, it, it was Islamists, but it was socialists and communists and students and, and the middle class. And, you know, the, my parents were in it. They were enormously politicised. Everyone around us was. And the idea was that they were kind of taking their country back from this imperialist Shah um, who was politically oppressive, but of course secular. Um, and so as Iranians, uh, we get to look back and, and, and think that was somehow a good time, but it wasn't. Um, <laughs> however, their revolution was um, stolen in a way, um, and, and they ended up, or my life ended up being defined by one of the most oppressive regimes in the modern world. And everyone knew someone who was raided, whose phone was bugged. Everyone knew a woman who was chucked into, into a car for and not abiding um, by the religious dress code. It, and Iranian women actually protested this, you know, en masse. Um, and they were mostly Muslim. It wasn't that they were opposed to Islam. They were opposed to women being told how to dress, right? But, we, but that all happened as just the backdrop to a bloody war that we were fighting with Saddam Hussein's Iraq. And, you know, as our streets sort of flooded with amputees um, and everything was renamed after the martyrs, uh, my parents and their cohort kept being political and kept writing their pamphlets and kept having those conversations. And that's all I remember of Iran is, um, is questioning what's on the news and, and, and people getting together with sort of fever pitch anxiety about how to change this regime and how to kind of fight for freedom. Um, and, and then that got to be too dangerous. So we started to look at anywhere that we could go. One of the, the funniest things to look back on now in a way is like the other option for my parents was Rwanda. <laughs> and because it was seen as like this, you know, independent, free um, African nation that they could go to. And I think about that. We left Iran at the end of 1990. Um, that was the beginning of some of the conflict in Rwanda. So had we, <laughs> we gone there, you know, it was three and a half years away from um, one of the most horrific um, genocides. So, so, you know, we, we were desperate. We were just going anywhere at and all. He had, and he had a very positive experience of arriving in... Yes. Goris <laughs> talks about that experience beautifully <laughs> in the book of how welcoming um, the first encounter was when they arrived in New Zealand um, as refugees. So now let's uh, fast forward to when you do arrive in New Zealand as children aged... Six. Six and aged... Nine. nine. Um, what were your first impression of New Zealand? 
I think we had similar briefly, we had yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. I think we, it was... Gazelle is actually a main character in my book because she's the first little kid that I met. Yeah, it is. So. I didn't want to be her friend. I was like, I've already got an Iranian friend. I, <laughs> um, I, I think we both... Like, one of the things I think a lot of people notice is how flat the, the, the landscape is, like the one-story houses. It's not apartments. Um, no, the thatched roofs. And the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it was like, oh, these houses look like the cartoon houses. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have those. We're from yeah. big cities. <laughs> yeah, and the green. Yeah. Um, yeah. And for me, it was not seeing sandbags at school. Like yeah. I was, uh, For me, that was a norm because you yeah. have that in a war zone. Mm. And I was like, why, why are you not having... Having boys at school was a big one for me. I didn't notice. <laughs> no, you didn't, yeah. In fact, it's very interesting. Boris and Ghazale became friends when they came to New Zealand and in fact are in each other's books. There's a mention of Goris. I've just realised I haven't got my glasses so I might get my husband to actually go through those doors, find my glasses. <laughs> oh, please. Thank you so much, Alistair. Go the allies. So, so here's Ghazale saying about Goris. One of the other, girl, other girls, Goris, was relatively new when her parents moved to New Zealand in 1990. We were um, at each other's mehmuni, which means the social <laughs> gathering, and a 10-year-old Goriz was sitting alone in her oversized floral dress, terrified of all of the strangers <laughs> around her. Now, um, Goriz, you actually talk about the importance of having an um, mm. Iranian community, and you say that, that um, those mehmunis, thank you so much, Alistair. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, I do recommend Kiwi Husbands. <laughs> I have a very good one. <laughs> um, so, um, Goriz in her books talks about the importance of uh, having a, a Iranian um, a Kiwi community and how important those connections are in really anchoring you um, in, in your own culture and also um, for your reception in the new culture. She talks about um, emboldening you to um, embrace yourself, your outsider status. Um, so talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think it's really... Um it's, it's, it's such a heartbreaking but sort of almost fascinating, again, with the distance of time experience um, when you're from a very um, largely monocultural, monoracial place. And so you don't really know um, about the hierarchy of races except in that international sphere. So as Iranians, we knew that, you know, we are not Westerners and some of the things that are happening to us are happening because we're not in that community of nations seen as equals. We definitely knew that and there's like a degradation that's associated with that. But to come into another society and suddenly realise that race exists and, and cultural hierarchies exist and people see you and your parents as being, um, you know, at best sort of homely and, and sort of quaint. And, and, you know, these are my parents, these educated revolutionaries, these political people. Um, and, and just suddenly realising that you've kind of, it's things have shifted. And then as we both kind of went into our preteens and realising, you know, you're not, there's beauty standards that exist and you're not part of them mm. and you know and and it's kind of you're sort of awake when the knife goes in so to speak and I know that actually people who are generationally um living with these these racial standards experience it in, in a way in a, in a worse way because you kind of internalize that self-hate but we were aware of it and so having that Iranian community to 
to escape to and to have our own to have our own sort of cool kids and yeah. and, and fashion and and um, and parties happening was just so invaluable. You know, we kind of could, could derive our self-worth from something that was equal. So uh, coming here as uh, young children, you quickly managed to gather what we call cultural capital. You understood uh, what the culture is like and how to integrate into that culture. Um, but you, Goriz, um, you talk about how your parents didn't have that capital culture. Ghazali, um, it would have been the same uh, for you and your parents. Mm. So, um, do you think um, that um, this idea of integration is, of course, important? But Ghazali, talk to us about the idea of assimilation. You, you make a distinction between integration and assimilation in your book quite clearly. Could you talk to I us do, about yeah. that? I do, yeah. To me, it was assimilation. I always had a... a um, uncomfortable relationship with it because to me and I know we can argue about it because it's 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 a very specific word but for me it was kind of getting rid of your past completely and everything that made you who you are today and and taking on new things but completely foregoing everything else and that's not integration I think integration is obviously blending the two and I I remember watching and this is where I kind of um, took the analogy from, I was watching Whoopi Goldberg <laughs> randomly on Graham Norton, as you do on a Friday night. Um, and she talked about her very first one-woman show that she did, um, and she had to go perform it for Steven Spielberg. And she was a bit hesitant because in her show, she kind of made fun of E.T., the extraterrestrial. And in the show, <laughs> she talks about how E.T. doesn't go home in the end. He stays on Earth. He becomes a gangster. He grows jerry curls. He wears <laughs> gold jewellery. Um, and then one day his family come back and he shoots them all and kills them all because he doesn't recognise them. He doesn't recognise that they're him. And I just, I just love, I mean, it's, it's a bit crazy, but I kind of <laughs> love that analogy. And she talks about that as kind of assimilation, it's forgetting who you are and where you came from and everything that made you. Um, and so for me, that doesn't work. For me, integration is what we should be aiming for. I think it's also about this idea. I, I think often, though, people tell us to integrate and what they mean is, it's, it's still kind of assimilation. Still, yeah, you're right. And it's like, actually, integration is about a give and take. Mm. So it takes everyone to take a step That's forward. It's, we all have to integrate with each other, mm. whereas I think the onus quite often gets put on migrants. And, it, and you know, when you think about a new migrant, it, you know, people think, oh, well, that's fair, you've come here. But it never stops because actually you never stop, you know, three generations, four generations on, yeah. the Chinese community in Auckland is still being treated that way. So actually it's not, it's, it has to be about integration. It has to be about a decision that we as a community are diverse, and that means substantive equality and a mixing of cultures. Um, and I think nowhere in New Zealand probably knows the value of that, although we probably haven't achieved it yet, we can all agree, um, but no one knows that as much as Otataki, you know, You've, you've seen the end point of not not having that equality recognised. Mm. Azara says in her book, assimilation is cultural genocide. You cannot ask someone to fully assimilate into a culture and completely eradicate 
their own. Assimilation means erasing your identity and past and everything that has made you who you are. Integration is different. Integration asks you to include yourself in society as yourself. It does not ask you to murder your past. I think the other thing, though, as well, is if we take it as integration being that we all take a step forward, um, if, if the status quo, if the majority did do that, I think very quickly we'd kind of realise it's not that hard because our values are very much That's shared. Right. Yes. You know, so it is that thing of people used to ask me this when I first ran, you know, and I'd, I'd go into these um, communities that I had, hadn't ever been in or they hadn't had a speaker that was a refugee. <laughs> um, and people would, you know, you'd, very well-meaning people would sort of put up their hand and go, you know, how can we um, help other migrants to assimilate as well as you have? And you'd kind of go... I get that too. Yeah, and, and I'd always kind of answer that with a question where I'd go, well, what makes you think that I've assimilated well? And they'd all come back, you know, they'd come back with these um, uh, compliments that were things like, well, you're a strong woman, you're dressed in a Western way, you're educated, you're strong, you're political. Those are Iranian values. <laughs> you know, like I learned feminism from people who face tanks for equality, men and women. You know, they faced torture for those protests back in Iran. That's how political they are. <laughs> and so, you know, I think if we understood that about each other, we'd, we'd realise it's much easier. And then um, there is, of course, uh, the notion of being perceived as an outsider, mm -hmm. so something that um, all of us struggle with. Um, you say... Um, um, Goris, that the most offensive thing about um, the most offence that you have caused as a female refugee is self-assurance. <laughs> um, that a lot of the teardowns that you get is about um, your confident-seeming persona, oh. um, and and also the fact that um, in a lot of the Facebook comments that you get, and I follow Goris on social media, and I know the sort of vitriol that she faces whenever she puts um, some uh, comments to do with the areas that she um, is responsible for. And um, in some of those uh, comments, James Shaw is tagged saying on, on those online comments saying, get your woman into line. Um, now, you have faced really horrendous, horrendous vitriol, um, Talk yeah. to us about that. Um, Tell us why do you think that is? Yeah, um, so, you know, we know, and I think it's, it's now truth universally accepted, um, that women and minorities get far more abuse online to the point of silencing us. And, you know, Amnesty International in, in 2019 recognised the abuse of women online in New Zealand as one of its key human rights issues. So that's based on research. It's happening. Um, and, and if you are a minority, it's far, far worse. So I've got kind of the smorgasbord of things where it's like you're a refugee, you're presumed to be Muslim, you're um, a woman, you look young, you, you know, it's all of the things. Um, and yeah, so it's, I think for, for women, it's often that we, the, the attack is that you, you lack credential, you lack credibility. Why are you able to talk about that? Why, you know, why are you expert enough? And, and male politicians don't get that because rightly, you don't need credentials to be elected. You get elected. that on issues uh, that she's qualified, highly qualified, mm. probably one of the most qualified people. And it's, but then you also get, and I think, you know, one of the most chilling things about my tenure as a politician is that when I first ran, 
I realised just the extent of this prejudice that exists and how deeply ingrained it is. I did get a lot of love from a lot of different communities, but I also got this hate that was very real and very immediate to the point that the first time I stood in Parliament in New Zealand, I had to address it. So I had to kind of stand there and go, I get threats of gun violence because I'm presumed to be Muslim and known to be a refugee. And, I, you know, my point was to hold to account the people who were actually sitting in that room with me for perpetuating some of the stereotypes that lead to our lack of safety. But 18 months later, there was an, an, a hate crime committed with, with gun violence. And so this is where it leads. And I don't know many speakers coming to any of the board session um, in this festival who would have had the chat that you had with the gentleman sitting yes. right there before coming on. Um, you very kindly come to Goris and <laughs> said that if there were any issues... Um, yeah, we have security this? in the session, by the way, everyone. Right. <laughs> because yes, of me. There is security for Goris. This is how it is. This is what it's like. Mm to be a refugee MP in New Zealand, our tolerant country. This is a reality. But I do want to acknowledge actually what, what you've pinpointed, which is that issue of being self-assured as being offensive. Because I think, you know, we have had, um, you know, women of colour in politics before, and we have, you know, we have that. But it's, and I, I thought about this a lot before I was elected, it, I feel the responsibility to present myself as someone who is, who has a right to be there, you know, to not to be, because, because there's people, there's young people looking to me, you know, they have a right to be there too. Mm. Um, and so to, to kind of, to, to be there acting sort of grateful and, you know, and I am grateful, but to constantly kind of be just, just cowering and that, you know, thanks for letting me kind of come in. Mm. <laughs> Whereas actually it's our right. And that's what people find offensive online. I fully um, mm. acknowledge and understand that. Um, some of the things that Goris has had to face, she only goes through um, some of it. Of course, there are things um, that you have... Uh, I actually thought about one of the things we were going to do is just have pages of just the comments, and we oh, decided no. it was just too heavy. <laughs> we couldn't, I, yeah. I remember helping so you just, with your mm. Facebook page when, we first, when you yes. first started... I couldn't handle it. I had to take myself out. I was like, Gloria's, I'm sorry. That's no, that's true. <laughs> and we've had staff do that. And yeah. people who are from minority backgrounds have had to go, no, we actually, I can't do it. You know, and, and that, this is like Māori or Pacific And it's people. not even aimed at me. Yeah, it's, it's like, just the This is a very small taste of it. Yeah. Wait until they're punching you in the head and have a knife to your throat. You are the offspring of country shoppers. Go back to where you come, came from and fix the problem there. Terrorist supporting tart. Who breeds people like her? And this is just a um, small part of it. So, but interestingly, this supposedly self-assured lady has got a problem with imposter syndrome. So do you, Ghazada, <laughs> you mentioned that in your book too. Both yeah. of them talk about imposter syndrome. Um, now, where does that come from? And... <laughs> I mean, for me, it's, it's trying to achieve a lot. Maybe it's that kind of high achiever issue, but also just constantly thinking you're not good enough. I mean, in the arts, it's full of, you know, it's full of people like that, I think. So <laughs> it's kind of normal. Um, but for me personally, it was always that. It's this idea of like, oh, you need to do better or you're not good. There's always someone better than you and all this stuff. Um, and so imposter syndrome just, just comes with it, I guess, in, in academia and in, in the arts. So 
it wasn't that new, and I know a lot of people who go through it, but I think maybe there's another level to it when you're also In terms an of, um, you're both very high achievers. In terms of wanting to achieve a lot, has it got something to do with the sacrifices your parents have had to make to bring you to a different No, you're a rebel. <laughs> hey, I'm being my doctor. <laughs> um, subconsciously, definitely, but... Yes. But not always. Yeah. I, yeah, I think in terms of... Um, imposter syndrome for me I I I feel much more comfortable almost being in this kind of um a role now where there's that kind of constant vein of undermining and you're like fighting it as an outsider whereas when it really kicked in for me was when I felt like I was achieving um very like normative success measures you know where I was just you know I was a lawyer and then I once I was in the UN system as as a as a prosecutor, you're kind of in that system. It's like a job for life. And and people ask you to do talks like this. <laughs> or, or, you know, you just it just felt so alien to me. It was like you're not meant to be that person. Even being in a secure relationship, you know, have, it, it felt like for, for the years of kind of accepting that that I wasn't necessarily meant for that because normal we, life. Yeah, because, because we, you have not had exactly. role models in those positions. Exactly. You can't be what you can't see, right? <laughs> That's right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Guris writes, Today, presenting as a proud woman of colour, being unapologetic about my achievements and behaving like I belong in every meeting room or on every stage I'm invited to walk upon is still struggle from time to time but I do it deliberately. I don't apologize for taking up a seat at the decision-making table. I don't downplay the achievements that, I, that took me to Oxford or the United Nations or the New Zealand Supreme Court, though I feel the knot of anxiety and shame appear even as I list these things now. And now. <laughs> and now, I can imagine. I know that other women and young people, particularly within marginalized groups, also suffer from doubt. The trick is to allow that doubt, to acknowledge just how difficult it is to live with it, to see its causes and to celebrate each other for standing, for standing in spite of it. For me, admitting the struggle is part of representing that experience. It has taken therapy. I have come from a place of experiencing physical panic from speaking to a small group of interns to speaking into megaphones at mass rallies and speaking at parliaments with strength and conviction. The doubt has never completely dissipated. But I know deep down that I belong, that we belong. We beat on. Because the more of us there are, the less we look like imposters. Mm. And I want to thank you, Goris, for those words, because that is very, very true. Mm. What you're doing, both of you, what you're doing is so important. You're really forging that path that you talk about. There's a chapter in your book about forging that path. And, you know, our children, your children, will be looking up to Goris and Ghazale and people like them. They are so important to be there so that we can see ourselves really in place of decision-making and around the decision table. Now, I'm conscious of time, mm-hmm. and I want to talk about Christchurch and what's happened here on uh, 15th of March. Now, Goris, um, you say in your book that all the issues surrounding um, what's happened here to do with security, intelligence, police, um, justice was within your portfolio. Yeah. 
Yeah, I randomly held all of the government portfolios right. for the Greens. <laughs> no, no, I mean, you know, I wasn't the minister, but I, in terms of fronting for the Green Party, one of the three government parties, I held all of those portfolios. You did. Um, so it was a, it was a, it was part of my work to really look. And, and, and you had that history. big responsibility of representing the community that was so affected, um, and also. Uh, all the issues that came from, um, that came after um, the Christchurch mosque attack, the, re- the, the, the need to, of course, um, reform um, our hate speech laws. Mm. And yet you say in your book that even though this was an area that you worked on for a number of years, you had a meeting um, with Andrew Little and you decided in that meeting that it was best for you not to front that um, yeah, it got fine. scary. I think we don't realise, I mean, you know, as Aotearoa poured out in absolute love, you know, across our nation, and I always say this, the city of Dunedin ran out of flowers on that Saturday because they were all at the mosque, mm-hmm. you know, and and here in Christchurch, it was just, it was incredible and beautiful. And we, But actually for some of us in those marginalised communities, the week after got much scarier because actually the the pushback came and the abuse got worse and, and it kind of started to get, you know, knowing the end point made it much, much scarier. Um, and for me, you know, I ended up um, with threats that led to me having police escorts and having um, security in parliament and only, only the prime minister has that. So it, it was very real. And so, yeah, it, it did... and you know, having that meeting with the minister and I'd had meetings about hate speech with um, with Andrew before and, we, you know, it wasn't a priority um, for the government and then suddenly, you know, he kind of said actually as, as a Pākehā man, I see now that I, you know, it's a responsibility. But it's, the reason we, we kind of, it, it's at every level, it's inclusion and representation in every you know, every forum that matters but we also need those laws to recognise mm-hmm. that groups have rights as well and need protection as well, is, you know, you look at the um, Islamic Women's Council who said we'd been around the country, they'd been going around the country for five years trying to report the hate speech and hate crimes that were escalating for them and no one had followed up. And white supremacy is still not listed as, as, a, as a terrorist threat in New Zealand where there is, there is the list. And, you know, having worked in the courts, I know that the mosques and the, and the Muslim community were actually under surveillance for years and years. And what do you, th- yes. and what do you think about free speech? Just, just consider that those of us that say that hate speech does need reform in this country, we actually have come here, we've left our country because we value free speech. We want mm. to. There's somebody else sitting at the background that is here as a refugee because that he wasn't able to mm. exercise his right to free speech. So we are, um, as oppressed groups in our own home country, value free speech very much. But we also understand that other people have got a freedom to live safely and without fear and without being attacked on the street, without being spat at, spit at, without being spat at, without being, their hijabs being pulled mm. and so on. And Goris talks about how there is hate speech. The effect of it is felt on the street by real people, that those 
um, speech and those behaviors, especially when they are done by people in positions of power, have got real consequences for real people. Now, Ghazada, going back to what happened here in um, Christchurch, you made a film about yeah. it. This is us. Could you talk to us yeah. about that? Um, so RNZ and NZ on Air had put out a call for um, projects that would commemorate the one-year anniversary. And um, I put forward an idea with my supervisor, Shuchi Kathari, who had done a similar um, kind of project with um, people in, in, in the Pacific, where you kind of make your own stories and you film it, you edit it, and it's, um, it's a way to also support people to make their own stories. And so initially we wanted to do um, short docos where we invited Muslim filmmakers from all over New Zealand to direct their own segments. But unfortunately, we just didn't have the resources to find those people. And this will link mm. up to the idea of representation and, and find, mm. you know, really supporting people to get, to bring themselves out from wherever they are and start making their own work. Anyway, so we didn't. So it ended up being me directing it. But we found, um, uh, you know, a variety of people. I met Zahra, who lives here, and she was going to help us. But unfortunately, again, due to the budget, we had to keep it to Auckland. And so we found families um, from all over, different backgrounds, um, and we asked them one simple question, was, which was, what do you love the most? So it could be something like going to the beach. Um, one woman was a master cook. She cooked this amazing feast. Um, someone else um, loved learning te reo and Japanese. Um, and so the intention behind it was, was to really push the idea that we're all, we all hold similar values, and so we called it This Is Us, and that my intention behind that was as kind of a, a counteract mm, yeah. Prime Minister's <laughs> point of they are us, which really pissed me off, to be honest, because you can't do that. That's, that's really already othering that entire group saying they and us, and, and so I hated it, and so I intentionally put This Is Us. Um, and I think I was really proud of it. We had a mainly all-woman crew. Um, and we had a really good reception to it, but we, we also had the opposite mm. of, of a good reception, which was, again, to me, and I know I shouldn't be so naive, but I was surprised. It was the lead-up to the commemorations, and we had all this hatred coming out about, you know, almost people, almost, there were people almost pretty much saying, oh, is, aren't we over this yet? And it was just, I just couldn't believe it. My mind was just like... It's yeah. really interesting to me as well just to notice that that representation, because you and I get you know, we quite often step up and say some of these things, but we, neither of us are Muslim. No. So, <laughs> so you know, you get, and, and for us, it's, it was, it's almost counterintuitive for me to go, stop, you actually, we actually do need to respect the rights of religious minorities because, you know, our families have experienced violence because of the religious freedom or freedom from religion <laughs> that wasn't afforded to us. But we have to stand up for that right because otherwise we're behaving like that same regime. Mm. That's what that say, regime did, you know. <laughs> well, when you say neither of you are Muslims, uh, Ghazala, I know that you mentioned in your book that you do, don't define yourself as a Muslim, but you strongly identify with your... Culturally, yeah. Um, culturally with um, Islamic Culturally, heritage. it's in me, and I feel a strong affiliation, and, and often the two become intertwined. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I would say I'm more agnostic, um, if I was mm -hmm. to label it. 
But I don't practice it, so I don't want to say that I am. I know, but it's an important distinction because Mm, um, I um, don't define myself um, by any religion. I probably have the same agnostic Mm. position. But I uh, very much um, identify with my Islamic heritage. There Mm. are, and it's not just uh, mosque-going or practicing um, the religion that makes you a Muslim. It's, 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 It's actually the way that we have been uh, conditioned to think about religion that leads to a lot, a lot of people declaring themselves as non-Muslim because for a long while I was um, introducing myself as a Persian mm. right? oh yeah Persian. No. <laughs> Um, um, non-Muslim because I really wanted people to conjure up um, sort of good understanding of who I was. I really wanted to immediately declare to people that I'm a good person, that you know, none of the uh, prejudices that you have about um, Muslim, about them being inherently violent or backwards and so on, applies to me. And all the Iranian connotation of association with terrorists, say Persian, Persian carpet, Persian caviar, Persian cat, all the good things. But the reality is there is no Persia. Persia is not well, Iran. That hasn't word. been Persia. It's actually not an Iranian word. It's not it's an Iranian a... word. So, but the, you see a lot of Iranians really refusing to introduce yeah. themselves mm. as, as um, Iranians because, because what happens to minorities is that their identity is often formed as a response to people's prejudices. No, that's totally true. But I do think, I mean, I never, because I, I do get abused as, as, as being Muslim, and I would never clarify that point in response to I've abuse. I've noticed that, yes. Because you can't, that's, that's just absolute. I would never say, oh, I'm not Muslim, if someone is saying, oh, you know, she's a, whatever abuse I'm receiving. But I think it is a, it is an important point in the context of what happened in Christchurch, because they were practicing Muslims, and they yeah. You know, and, and their the representation yeah. and their voice is actually missing still. Yeah. Um, so it, it, then, you know, in Parliament, um, when Parliament first sat after the March 15th terror attack, we had religious leaders um, open um, Parliament because we actually have a prayer. We have a parliamentary prayer. I don't know how many New Zealanders know this, but we have a Christian prayer. Um, so we had that. We had um, the Te Maori version and we had... Um, and imam also um, open, but there was no uh, there was no Muslim MP who could facilitate that when the speaker asked. Yes. So there was just no, you know, it was mm. it's very much just it, yeah. it is lacking in media and in, in politics. Time's ticking, and I really want to allow for questions. So any questions? We have volunteers with roaming mics. If you have uh, any questions, please keep them brief. Um, and we'll try and get through as many questions as we we can. So we've got a lady at the front. It's always good to start with a woman question. Yeah, I was going to say, you almost never get that. Well done, that lady. (laughs) Uh, Kia ora, thank you. Um, I'm just thinking... um, on, also on that day, on March the 15th, there was a lot of activism from young people going on in the square, and a lot of them, you know, we were all locked in this library together. Mm-hmm. But thinking of that, and how can we harness that, and how, how can you leave the ladder down so that other young people can come up and follow, follow in your trailblazing and amazing footsteps? Um, yeah, that was the day of the first climate strikes in New Zealand, mm-hmm. so it was a really big day for us as Greens, um, and 
so it was incredibly heartbreaking to see this inspirational wave of young people from across the globe um, talking about their futures and taking taking initiative like that and for that to coincide with a terror attack. Um, I think they're taking the reins anyway, um, but I do get asked quite regularly, as I'm sure you do, where, um, you know, the, the be young women of colour who say, you know, how can I get involved and how can I... What I feel really responsible for is that we kind of individualise... Um, that journey and we kind of go, oh, well, you know, you've just got to back yourself and you've got to stand. And Helen Clark always says this and I've, I actually need to have a conversation with her because <laughs> being a middle-class Pākehā woman is quite different than being a young Māori, you know, or, or Middle Eastern or migrant woman. Um, and, and even for, for young women of any um, background, it's, we can't just say go and break the glass ceiling. Mm. Like, yes, yeah, some people do. But, I, you know, I don't feel like I broke a glass. You know, the glass is on my face, like it's bleeding. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a safe experience. We have to make it safe. Um, and I think it's about all of us. We have to make space. And I think the status quo has to make space. I, I do think people, uh, you know, we as, as the government, you know, may have to start to think more deeply about what we fund and that we're not just funding people to be, for example, in front of the camera, but to be on boards, to be behind the purse strings, to be behind the camera, to be journalists and writers and whatever else. But, you know, people organising festivals also have to think more deeply about who they put on the stage. Publishing houses have to think about who they publish. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a culture shift where we look around us and we see certain people as leaders, certain people as writers, certain people as authoritative, mm. um, and others is not. And that's what has to change. And I, I mean, I take responsibility for that. So that's kind of in our world where we, where we can, you know, forming your film collective. I always example. say, like, find your group as well. Like, you, no one becomes a leader on their own. I thoroughly mm. believe that. And I always tell young people, like, find that support group and there are people, and whether it's a mentor or just a bunch of other people like yourself. And that's kind of, yeah, for me that helps. And I, and I, and I it, say it, it gets over the societal gaslighting, eh? So you can, yeah. you can come like, back and go, is that, I keep not getting that promotion. And, and they're like, know, well, it's this like, is why. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah. It's, it's fine. It's and because of that. <laughs> right, let's go to um, another question. Got one more. Thank you all. I have a question for Razole. Uh -oh. Can you... <laughs> no, it's a good one. It's okay, well, um, I know her. I know. <laughs> um, you know, you, you are an artist, you're a filmmaker. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges of telling stories when people expect you of what a story that comes from you has to look like, right? Like mm. there are stories about us, but they're particular kinds of stories. Can you talk mm. to the challenges in the, in the artistic realm of when we get the platform or the mic of this expectation of telling a particular story? Stereotypes. Thank you very much. I was really hoping for that question. I'm yeah. glad it came up. Yeah, it's a great question because I've struggled with it myself. And to be honest, I, I didn't want to write anything or to do, have anything to do with my Iranian background, my Iranian-ness, until I got to about high school and my um, history teacher um, told me to do my history project on the revolution um, as opposed to my obsession with Abraham Lincoln for some reason. <laughs> and that kind of started this trajectory. And I had a lot more teachers throughout the years in film school saying, you know, why don't you look at your own culture? And then that kind of really ignited something in me. Um, and I realised also at the beginning I was relying on stereotypes myself. And so I think that, you know, that comes with growing older and, and doing more um, writing. You learn 
about the mistakes you made yourself. And so now I'm helping other people try and realize that. So it's, it's not just, um, you know, say a, a Pakia guy telling stories that's got stereotypes. I've had people from our own community do that. What are some um, of the stereotypes? Stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Oppressed mothers, um, zealous husbands and brothers, you know, just oh, the number of like depressing stories about mm. being Iranian or an immigrant. And I'm like, you know, you can do a comedy. Like, there's so much there now. Um, it is changing. And I think that's awesome. And I think New Zealand is, you know, there is a hunger for it. And, and I'm seeing that, you know, this year has been my busiest year ever, artistically. And I think because the, the, the um, zeitgeist mm. <laughs> has changed a little. Mm-hmm. And so people wa- are wanting that. The people at the top who normally would have shut those doors are now allowing us to come in. And, and it might be just ticking diversity boxes sometimes, but I'm like, fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're taking that responsibility, yeah. This is, this is, this is what Goris and Ghazala have that I don't have, and that's the ability to be able to swear successfully. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, oh, I'm it's so frowned upon in Farsi. Oh, my God. Oh, it is. My dad can't believe it. Yeah. No, he's like, he's like you went to university. <laughs> Why are you swearing? <laughs> the difference between sort of leaving your home country at a much earlier age uh, where the um, opportunity for acquiring that cultural capital is greater than me who left at the age of 18. It somehow never comes. I can never do that. I always feel silly even wanting to attend. So any, any other questions, please? Yes. We've got, we've got one at the back and then we'll come to you at the front. Gender balance. <laughs> These days, there are lots of the movements in Iran. They are looking for democracy, for example, women freedom, environmental NGO or something like that. I'm pretty sure most of them know you both and you may be in contact with them. What is your advice for them to be successful, to be more effective? Do you mean in Iran? In Iran, yeah. What to be honest, I, I'm so out of time. Like my parents have never, my family's never been back to Iran, so I can only imagine how hard it is for them. So all we can really do is sort of platform them where we can. But the the incredible, you know, in, environment, the oppressive environment that they they're operating in, I couldn't I couldn't begin to give them advice because you know we again we tell people to just be bold, but actually they're facing death. Um, and, and imprisonment and torture for what they do. So I, I mean, I'm just in awe of them. But it, they're fighting. They're they're fighting. Yeah, people fighting it. And and you know, we 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 can't. We we just don't know what's happening there. But we what we can do is give them a pla- You know, share their stuff and their stories and and things like that, and connect them with people who could fund, for example, their projects. But beyond that, in terms of what they should do in activism in Iran, I wouldn't tell someone to put their life at risk in that way. So I. And can I I just come in and say that actually I think in this instance the best thing is for people from outside to not actually interfere because there is so much that the um, Iranian government um, always use that to accuse the movements of being uh, politically motivated by elements outside of Iran and being directed. So it's actually best, especially when it comes to funding, not at all. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really a mistake. And, and it really um, irks me when um, Americans try to interfere because mm-hmm. Iranians know that the political history and inter- interference of outsiders in Iran. So it's best we are capable mm-hmm. of understanding our own oppression. 
we are capable of fighting our own fights. No, thank you very much from people from um, outside wanting to intervene. Um, uh, there was a question here. Yes. Thank you. <clears throat> Hi, I'm Sydney. Um, it's wonderful listening to the two of you, particularly how positive, how positively you've turned your your life experiences uh, <clears throat> during your journey. It's wonderful. I've just come from the Farid Ahmed presentation um, at, at the piano, uh, talking about the loss of his wife and, and March 15th and his wonderful propensity for forgiveness. Now, at that presentation, he was asked by a member of the audience whether he thought there was racism in New Zealand. His, his very gracious or generous response was, to say he doesn't think there's racism, but there are misunderstandings, which I thought was incredibly gracious. Mm -hmm. Given my South African experience for 45 years of my life, I would have added the word ignorance to this matrix. Mm. Uh, misunderstandings, yes, but certainly lots of ignorance. I'm keen to hear what the two of you, how you would have responded if you were asked the same question. Is there racism in New Zealand? There's racism everywhere. There's racism everywhere. Mm. And I've spent most of my life here, so the majority of the racism I've encountered has been here. Um, there's definitely ignorance, but I, I, would, I would call it racism. Yes. Yeah, um, of course. And, I mean, I think I, I go back to what happened in the days after March 15th when... And I think there was, there was real value in the Prime Minister's statement in keeping people calm. But there was a moment where the fear kind of set in in those communities where there was, there was a risk that we would just move on and brush it under the carpet. And actually, we couldn't afford that. It was Tangata Whenua who stood with the Muslim and migrants of colour and said, actually, this is a colony... We've lived here with racism for 200 years. The systems are built on white supremacy. Let's talk about that. You say yeah. white supremacy started with colonization. Mm. And, and actually, it, it was a, it was it was. a beautiful <laughs> moment where we could push off by acknowledging our history mm. and the fact that it's not about individual blame. That never works. We've all seen it in these online fights and it just pushes people into different corners more and more and more. We do have to call out racism, but actually we need to dismantle the systems. Yep. You know, they're built on, on supremacy of one We've race. only got a couple of minutes left, so one more question. There is racism, not only everywhere, but in all of us, even <gasps> us as minorities. Um, it's just different degrees. And, and to address it, we have to be actively anti-racist. Just the lady at the back. I'm sorry that this is the last question. I'm so sorry. I say that I really agree with Taika Waititi and his stand. <laughs> yeah, I think it is as racist as fuck here. And I, I wear a hat, which I got from the Cancer Society via via a specialist for uh, being uh, UV sensitive. And I wear this hat and I have been spat at. Oh, my God. And it is really, mis you know, it's, it's not just misinformed. We do have to address the slick uh, of colonial and post-colonial here. It has not gone away and we can't turn our back on it. You know, and I think we, Pākehā especially, have to acknowledge our shame and uh, our grief and our complicity 
And we can't just say we're all racist, we're, we're all racist everywhere and it's normal or it's a part of being human. It is not. We don't have to be that way. And there are people who are deeply not racist and we need to grow towards them. Yes. We need to never accept it. Never. And honestly, and you're absolutely right and I commend you and I'm really sorry that you've had that mm. experience but it does mean that you, you can empathise but it's the this problem is that shaming I I one hundred percent think we need to call it out when it's coming from positions of power and media are included in that. But shaming individuals is not working. So we actually need Absolutely to commit right. to undoing those systems, According to the telling these stories, to funding different stories, to backing different candidates, to to kind of making space in our leadership positions and in and, and work and um in the arts. <coughs> That's the way that we make change and that's the way to be actively anti-racist, mm. right? Because those systems have been placed in place to favour certain people, to favour certain cultures. And, you know, while we're being degraded in, in the news every day and the war on terror wages and whatever else, that's what contributed to what happened in Christchurch. We were dehumanised for decades. We were seen as terrorists for decades, less human, more violent, you know, this black abyss. And if we had been able to tell our stories, if Palestinians could tell their stories, if Māori could tell stories that were not about just domestic violence and crime, it would all, it would all be quite different. And time is up, and this is a good place for me um, to actually thank Goriz and Ghazale for doing exactly what Goriz just mentioned, telling their stories, and telling it beautifully, honestly, candidly, and insightfully. And thank you to all of you. Um, I'm sure you've heard this a lot in previous sessions about this beautiful day and the fact that you've given it up <laughs> to be here. I really thank you from the bottom of my heart for your curiosity, for your willingness to engage and learn. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.